Today's scripture reading is from Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. I'll give you a minute to locate your verses from your Bible. Malachi 1, verses 1 to 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of the hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. May God bless the reading of his word. I'd like to invite Pastor Jeff to share today's message. Again, in our new series, this first topic is dispute number one, gaslighting God. There are two kinds of people, those who snooze and those who don't. If you go to the next slide, whose phone looks like this picture on the left here. Maybe some of you can identify with this, right? That sometimes one alarm isn't enough. Or sometimes uh, uh, your phone alarm isn't enough, right? That there's all these different types of alarm clocks now to give you that wake-up call, right? to tell you to get up out of bed. There's the really loud ones that shake your, your mattress and your pillow. There's the, the ones that, with the wheel that kind of when it goes off, it shoots off of your nightstand and you have to get up out of bed to go and chase it to, to turn it off. There's the, uh, the parental alarm clock that will come into your room and tell you to wake up and put on your pants. Right? There's, conversely, there's the kid's alarm clock that's going to wake you up at 6 a.m. even if it's July 4th or if it's a long weekend. And so we have these alarm clocks, right, because we are tired. Some of us are tired in the morning. We're groggy. We don't want to wake up. We're not fully there yet. You know, we're very happy and comfortable even just right where we are in our our blankets, under the covers. You know, even um, even with a set of multiple alarms sometimes, sometimes snoozing isn't enough. Right, so I have this uh, shortcut that I set up on my, on my iPhone, right, where if I hit the snooze button, Siri will announce in the loudest volume possible, in a very loud voice, what time it is. Essentially telling me, hey, it's time, it's time to get up. Get up. And so this summer, we are going to be starting a new sermon series through the book of Malachi. And we're called this sermon series, Malachi a wake-up call, because that's essentially what Malachi is doing. Malachi is one of the prophets of the Old Testament, and his name means my messenger, which is appropriate because Malachi is giving, he's delivering this message that is from God that is a wake-up call to God's people. And so this is how the book begins in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. 
This word oracle means burden. It's giving off the sense of like heaviness, of urgentness, of weightiness, of a responsibility. It's a word of the Lord, from the Lord. That's the message. It's not Malachi's message. It's God's word to his people given by Malachi. But ultimately it's still God's word. And so the book of Malachi is thus laid out in these six oracles or these six speeches, and then it gives off this conclusion. And even though Malachi is a messenger, oftentimes as, we, as we're working our way through Malachi, we're going to see God kind of directly addressing his people. And each speech is this kind of dispute, this disputation that scholars call it. It's typically some sort of truth claim that God is pre- presenting and then uh, through Malachi, and then it's a questioning of that claim. But you say... Right? It's a question of that claim by, by God's people in the form of a question. And then God responding to that with more evidence or with more support. And as we think about this back and forth between God and his people, we can kind of understand, you know, this is, it's, it comes out this way because of where God's people are at. And so kind of a brief context setting history lesson, right? In 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon lay siege to Jerusalem, destroying Jerusalem and deporting the Israelites to Babylon. Israel was no longer a sovereign nation, but a nation under foreign rule. Historically, this was due to near east, uh, new ancient Near Eastern superpowers right, that came and destroyed both the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. However, theologically, God's word, the Bible, is clear that Israel's destruction was due only secondarily to these nations, but primarily, ultimately, to their covenant disobedience, their unfaithfulness to this covenant relationship they had with God. They had disobeyed God, and they had forsaken him time and time and time and time again. So God gave them up to these neighboring nations. And after this, up until 539 BC, the Babylonian Empire began to decline rapidly after Nebuchadnezzar's death and the succession of these other unpopular kings. And so this made the Babylonian Empire ripe for conquering. And so Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, comes in, arrives on the scene in 539 BC and takes Babylon. The people of Israel are then able to return to Jerusalem. And now Malachi now is writing to a people about, that's been living in Jerusalem for, for quite some time now, about 100 years later, after, the, after their return from the exile. When the Israelites first returned, they were excited, right? Coming out of, uh, out of exile, they had high hopes. They rebuilt the temple that had been destroyed, but they were looking forward to the, to the promises that would be fulfilled, the promises of God. That God would send his Messiah and he would establish his kingdom and bring justice and peace and blessings for everyone. But that's not exactly how it happened or what happened. The people who returned were just as unfaithful to God as the people as a generation before the exile. There were problems with the spiritual leaders, the priests. There was economic oppression and poverty and just general moral failures on all parts. The, the excitement, the enthusiasm that came, through, uh, came about through the prophets before Malachi had waned. And so Malachi is writing 
to a people. Now, that includes the spiritually apathetic, the cynical, the disillusioned, the dishonest, the callous, even the skeptical, and even the downright wicked. Malachi is, as we said earlier, a wake-up call against spiritual apathy. It's a call towards a right relationship with God expressed through repentance and right worship. And so there's these six disputes, each with a claim or an accusation made by God and Israel disagreeing with it, questioning God or his, what he's saying, and then God speaking about it some more. And so these are those six disputes. This morning, dispute number one, gaslighting God. Next week, dispute number two, dishonoring God, then betraying God, then impugning God. That's, you know, questioning his character and who he is, robbing God, and then disparaging God, questioning the worth of serving him. And these six disputes, as we kind of work our way through the book of Malachi, is going to show that the, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. You know, Israel's hearts were as hard as ever, as tough. The exile, as, as a form of God's loving discipline, didn't change anything. These six disputes show the extent of the human condition of our sin and our selfishness. And this is where the conclusion of Malachi comes in. Right? Malachi ends with God's promise of sending a new prophet, a new Elijah, who's going to restore the hearts of God's people. God himself will come to confront evil, to change hearts, and to redeem us. This is what the hope of all these prophets in the Old Testament pointed to. And so this morning we begin with this first dispute, gaslighting God. I'm kind of using that term a little bit loosely because it's not like we can actually succeed in gaslighting God, right? But, you know, our intent, what we do might be to cast doubt, right, on what actually happened. To say to God, well, you don't really love us. Or if you really loved us, it wouldn't be this way. In our passage this morning, we're going to see three points that reveal to us the kind of God that he is and then the implications that it has for us and how we're to respond. We're going to see three things. First, we're going to see that our God is a covenant-making God. We're going to see that our God is a promise-keeping God. And third, that our God is a universal reigning God. So I invite you to turn with me to Malachi 1, verse 2. We're going to begin there. This is how the oracle of the word of the Lord by Malachi begins. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? So this is the first point. Our God is a covenant-making God. You know, when God says, I loved you, this is more than just, you know, touchy-feeling emotions, that God is expressing to his people. God is pointing to the covenant relationship that he has with his people. The book of Malachi begins first with the declaration, the proclamation of God's continued covenantal and steadfast, enduring love for his people before, before it points to all the people's shortcomings and sins. I have loved you. It's a covenant love that has continued from past to present. And love, in this case, as we said, it's more than a feeling. 
It's the idea of God choosing Israel. I've chosen you to be in this relationship with. And so when we hear the words, I love you, I've loved you, we can hear, I've chosen you. To love means to choose. Our God is a covenant-making God. But a covenant is more than a, a contract. There's a, a distinction there. Contracts, you know, a lot of us are familiar with contracts. We sign contracts. Or you look at the new sports players, right? They sign contracts all the time. They negotiate. We sign contracts for our apartment lease, for our mortgages, for, the, uh, for our employment, for the home renovation project with the contractor. Covenants in the Bible, though, they're a little bit different. Or actually quite, quite different. A covenant is God's way of relating to his creation. And so there are some major differences between a covenant and a contract. With a contract, it's typically between two equal parties. There might be some negotiation involved. A uh, a contract is this if-then document, right? If you do this, I will pay you that. If you break the lease early, you will pay a penalty fee. With a covenant, it's formulated and initiated by God alone. And so there are conditions that must be fulfilled, but all of that comes after God's grace, his mercy. It's grace first, then our response to that. And so let's take the the Ten Commandments, for example. The Ten Commandments begins like with the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Second, you shall not make any idols and so on and so forth, right? But if we were to actually turn to Exodus, where it is, where it's listed, what comes before all these commands about what the people must do or not do? It's a statement by God, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. So notice, this isn't an if-then statement where God is saying, if you obey these commandment, commandments, I will then deliver you out of Egypt, out of slavery. God is reminding them of his grace already shown them. I have delivered you out of slavery from Egypt. Now then, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to that love to that faithfulness, to that grace, to something already done for you? How do you receive it? You receive it with trust and obedience. With a, with a contract, here's another distinction. With a, with a contract, it's usually temporary, right? You sign a one-year lease. Your company contracts out a job. And it may be for a long period of time, but most of us, we're not going to be working at that job forever. With a, a covenant, it's enduring. It's a perpetual promise, not an agreement that you can break. With a, with a contract, the focus is on what I'm getting out of it. With a, with a covenant, the focus is on what I'm giving to the other person. It's a focus on uh, the services or goods provided versus a focus on the other person in this covenant relationship. And so with a with contract, right, I'm making sure that it's going to benefit myself, right? When we sign a contract, when we look at the terms and conditions, we're trying to figure out, is it going to benefit me? 
Am I getting a fair deal? Do I need to negotiate for better terms, better conditions, better salary? With a covenant, it's about how can I benefit the other person? With a contract, another distinction, right? The trust. When we sign a contract, the trust is placed in the contract itself. How can I protect myself? What is going to happen if the other party fails? How am I going to recuperate some of these losses? With a covenant, the trust is placed in the other party. And so there's a difference, too, when one side doesn't live up to their end. Right? A contract is there to specify how the relationship should dissolve. It'll, it's going to specify the exchange of goods and services that are needed to close out that relationship. It's also going to specify right, what happens if one side doesn't follow through. If you stop paying rent, if you stop paying your mortgage, if you stop doing whatever it is. right? If rent isn't paid on time, if the renter breaks a lease early, right, and so on and so forth. But with a covenant, it's about a committed relationship. So instead of exacting a penalty, the person absorbs the cost. Instead of saying, well, hey, look, the, the, you broke the contract. Contract is void now. I am free. I'm going to collect the penalty, and I'm going to end this relationship. With a covenant, the person supports that failing party, the other side, so that they can meet the obligation. And ultimately, when you think about it, isn't that what God does in Jesus and through the Holy Spirit? Right? Literally, the book of Malachi shows how problematic and sinful the human condition is. And God says he will send a new Elijah to restore his people's hearts, to perform that open-heart surgery, right? That's a promise of other Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel, who says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So a contract is focused on, on what each party will do. A covenant is focused on what each party will be to one another. Both are binding relationships. One is legal, and the other is more spiritual. You sign a contract, you seal a covenant. One is an agreement to one another. The other is a pledge of yourself one another. We see this even in the earliest covenant that God had with Abraham. So in Genesis 15, God makes his covenant with Abraham, and God tells him, I will give you countless descendants and land, and I will make you a blessing to the nations. Abraham, he's unsure about God's promise, and so God does what is customary for a covenant. He enacts this covenant ceremony to show just how serious he is about it. And so with the ceremony, he brings these animals, right, these animal sacrifices. The animals, like the goat and the heifer, are cut in half. And the halves of the animals are laid out in a row side by side, creating a path to walk through. 
Now, in ancient Near Eastern practice, both parties would walk through the cut halves as they affirm their commitment, their covenant, their pledge to one another. And walking through these cut halves was symbolic of saying, let the fate of these animals be done to me if I were to break covenant with you. So this is God binding himself in covenant relationship with Abraham and his descendants. God would place himself under a curse if he failed to meet the obligations of this covenant. But notice, if we were to turn to Genesis 15, what we would see is that Abraham actually falls asleep. Falls into a deep sleep and he doesn't actually walk through. God walks through this path of slain animals, not just for himself, but for Abraham too. God is taking on the punishment, not just if he fails, but if Abraham or God's people fails. Right? This is the extent of what it means when God says to us, I am for you and not against you. And we see this most clearly and truly in Jesus Christ who took on the punishment and penalty that we deserve because we failed and we keep failing no matter how many second chances we're given. Because we fell short, because we remained unfaithful and we broke covenant, God was like, I am not going to give up on this relationship. I'm not going to give up on you. I will bear it. I will take on the punishment. I will absorb the cost because I love you. Because I have chosen you to be in this relationship. A covenant isn't just this shallow, I love you. It's not a nice platitude. When you think about covenants, marriage is is, is a common example of of a covenant relationship that many of us might be familiar with. Right? It's a covenant that husband and wife make with each other before God. And so you think of these traditional covenant vows. These covenant vows, it's, it's taking a vague promise. Like, I love you. And I will be with you. Right? And then clearly defining it. So if we think about these traditional uh, covenant vows, maybe some of you have said that, right? In sickness and in health. For better or for worse, for richer and for poorer, till death do us part. Till death do us part. It is forever. And it means that when you can't hold up your end, I will be there to support you. When you can only do 20%, I will do that 80. When you're at a lowest point and you're at zero, I'm at 100 for us. When you are sick, when you lose your job, it's not about how do I recuperate my losses, but it's how do I be that husband or wife to you. And so when we say that our God is a covenant-making God, all this is feeding into the few words that God has used to remind his people I have loved you. I've chosen you. Now, it's that very idea now of covenant, steadfast love that the people of Israel now respond back to God with, 
How have you loved us? They are questioning God's love for Israel. Life out of uh, exile didn't turn out the way they thought it would. And so they say to God, if you really loved us, it wouldn't be like this. Right? This is the first dispute. They're gaslighting God, practicing some revisionist history here. Right? God, your, your recollection of our relationship history together must be wrong. There was an old Onion article many, many years ago. The Onion is known for writing satire. So the article's title is Israel, Israelites Sue God for Breach of Covenant. And so I'm going to read an expert because I think it kind of captures the sentiment here in Malachi. It goes like this at the, at the beginning of the article. Attorneys representing the tribe of Abraham filed suit against God in New York's Southern District Court Monday citing 117 specific instances of breach of covenant. The Israelites are seeking $4.2 trillion in punitive and comp- compensatory damages. My client, the children of Israel, entered into this covenant with the defendant, capital D, uh, in good faith. They were assured in writing that in exchange for their exclusive worship of him, they would be designated his chosen people, and as such would enjoy his divine protection and guidance for eternity, said Marvin Sachs, the Manhattan attorney, bringing the suit on behalf of the Israelites. Despite the presence of numerous chosen people clauses throughout this covenant, my client has suffered countless tragedies over the past 5,000 years from the destruction of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem to the Spanish Inquisition to the Holocaust, Sachs said. Kevin Harrigan chief legal counsel for the Lord, called a press conference Tuesday to read a personal statement from his client, capital C. Harrigan went on to note that the Lord has not ruled out filing a breach of covenant countersuit against the Israelites, claiming that they have failed to worship the Lord in an acceptably faithful manner. The point of this article, and it goes on, but that was just an excerpt, the the point of Israel's response in verse 2 is the same as this article. How have you loved us? In covenant language, how have you shown that we are your chosen people? Nine times over the course of this book, the phrase, but you say, is repeated. God's people are continually pushing, pushing, pushing back against God, whether it's questioning his steadfast love, questioning his justice, questioning his character, questioning the, the worth of serving him. And it's important that Malachi begins first with God's covenant love for his people. A reminder that our God is a covenant-making God, not a contract-making God. Now, how do you know? How do, you, how do those of us this morning as we're worshiping here, how do we know if the relationship that we have with God is a covenant or are we treating it as a contract? I heard one, one pastor say this, ask yourself, when was the last time that God disappointed you? When was the last time God disappointed you? How did you respond? Like maybe it was something uh, that you were praying for for a really long time, but it just didn't happen. Or it didn't happen the way that you had hoped for. Or maybe it's treating our relationship with God as this quid pro quo, this for that kind of relationship. You do this thing for me, I do this thing for you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. 
or underneath, underneath our disappointment. What's driving our response is the belief that we have a claim, a right to God's steadfast love, that we deserve it, that he owes us this. Our God is a covenant-making God. You know, out of the abundance of his undeserved grace, he establishes this relationship with us, with you. The Israelites question that covenant love, and so here's the second point. Not just that our God is a covenant-making God, but our God is a promise-keeping God. It's the largest chunk of today's passage. God is giving this support for his covenantal love for his people. And he does this in a really interesting way. So his response is this in verse 2. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. In the same way that love here is covenantal language, so is the word hate here. Right? So if, it, if it's helpful for us, we can read it as, you know, yet I have chosen Jacob, but Esau I have not chosen to be in this relationship with. He's not saying I have loved Jacob more than Esau. He's saying I have loved or chosen Jacob rather than Esau. I've chosen the former, not the latter, to be in this covenant relationship with. And he Response, he begins his response by highlighting the fact that they're brothers. Why? Right? It's because you know, Israel questioning God, how have you loved us? Us is to almost put a claim on God's love, right? A claim on this covenant relationship. We're chosen, we deserved it, we're special, but we're unhappy, we're bitter because we're not receiving your love in the way that we expect it to or that we want it to. But God says, look, it could be argued that Esau had as much claim on my favor as Jacob did. But I chose Jacob. I chose Israel. And this distinction between Jacob and Esau was made before either of them was born. So Paul writes in Romans 9, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Paul continues, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. uh, God is pointing to his rejection of Esau as proof of his covenant to Israel. This doesn't mean that all of Jacob's descendants would be spiritually, automatically, spiritually, internally saved. And neither does it mean that all of Esau's descendants would be lost. It's simply that God has chosen one particular people group where he would instruct them with truth, train them with righteousness, discipline them in love. Regardless of how often they strayed from him, he would uphold the covenant and be faithful to them by his grace so that, so that through them, The whole world would be blessed. The nations would be blessed. And this is what Peter writes when he takes up what was said of Israel and applies it to to the church in this new covenant relationship. Peter writes, but you 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so you look at Edom. Right? They were a wicked, wicked people. And their destruction and their desolation is what happens when they are not covered by God's undeserved mercy and grace. It doesn't mean that Israel didn't do evil things. They rebelled against God all the time. But because of this covenant relationship with them, because he loved them, he disciplined them, but he also preserved them. Ultimately, that through this one people, all peoples would be blessed. The nations would be blessed. There's a story it's probably somewhat apocryphal because I've seen it mentioned with like different historical characters across different times. And one of the earlier ones I've heard, it, was, it goes like this. The story is told of King Louis the Fourteenth, the ruler of France. And he asked the famous philosopher and mathematician, Blaise Pascal, to give him proof for the existence of God. And Pascal replies, Well, your majesty, the Jews, the Jewish people, you see, what Pascal was doing was he was pointing to the remarkable story of preserva- preservation and survival over hundreds and thousands of years. And it's kind of what God is getting at here, right? But you say, how have you loved us? God says, take another look at your own history. Israel disputes God's love. In other words, they argue, if we're your chosen people, if you promised protection in this covenant relationship that we have with you, God, then why are things so bad right now? Why did we just come back from the exile to encounter famine and poverty and injustice? But in the midst of their suffering, they weren't able to see their own wickedness or even God's faithfulness in the face of their sin. Israel. Israel suffered from theological myopia, theological nearsightedness. Some of us wear, many of us wear glasses or contacts. When we take out our contacts at the end of the day, we're probably not completely blind, although some of us feel like that. We can get around, but everything's a little bit blurry, right? We're kind of stumbling around. And I remember driving down the highway one night, and I had my contacts in, but they, you know, sometimes contacts get dry or they get out of place, right? And as I'm driving, it, that's what happened. And so I'm looking at those green exit signs because I need directions of where to go. And I find that the text is blurry. I can't really make out which exit number it is or what town or highway uh, it goes to until it's literally almost right above my car. And so my hands are on the steering wheel close to my chest. I'm leaning over, cranking my neck upwards, trying to squint my eyes just to see what the exit sign says. But I couldn't see the signs. Likewise, Israel's theological eyesight was bad as well. They couldn't see the signs. They, the signs of how God has loved Israel. And sometimes our theological myopia is just as bad. 
But Malachi is coming to us as a wake-up call. God says, I've loved you. And we say, how have you loved us, God? Where is your covenant steadfast love? Ultimately, it's in Jesus. Right? The whole of salvation history points to our God being a promise-keeping God. Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the, what? the love of God. Where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus, the one who is the fulfillment of God's promises, the one who demonstrates most perfectly God's faithfulness and loyalty to the covenant relationship that he has with us. This is how God loved us. By walking through those slain animals and bearing that curse for us by dying on a tree, by being nailed to the cross as the ultimate sacrifice, as the ultimate act of love so that we might have newness of life in a right relationship with God. Now we close with this third and last point. Verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So our God is a universal reigning God. Malachi's word is that God will turn their doubt into praise. That a repentant Israel would see God's judgment on his enemies and on sin and acknowledge his justice and praise God for his covenant faithfulness and his sovereign reign. That they would see that the Lord is great. Not just within Israel. This isn't just a local God only covering this one area. Right? But he is great beyond Israel, across the whole earth, to the ends of the earth. God is not a local deity, but a universal God. His rule and reign extends to the ends of the earth. And the response here is a future one. Right? Your own eyes will see this. And you're going to say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And by the end of Malachi, it was clear. It will be clear to us about the seriousness of our sinful condition. And about the need for restored hearts. Given that we live on this side of salvation history, knowing Jesus, having the Spirit in all of its fullness, might we be awakened out of our own spiritual apathy, out of our own cynicism and bitterness, and into greater praise for our covenant-making, promise-keeping, and universal reigning God. Will you pray with me? God, we confess that at times we express our cynicism, our apathy, in words or in an attitude that is not honoring to you. God, we confess that oftentimes it is hard to see your faithfulness and your steadfast love to us. But in those times, help us to look to Jesus. Help us to see your act of love for us in and through Jesus, in and through the cross, that you have this covenant relationship with us, that you keep your promises and that you are faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.